feel about what's happening to our children in public schools. Now most of the time when I come over here, that's what I talk to you about because that's really where my life is centered. But it occurred to me that uh, Alton's been in this struggle uh, and I'm very concerned about how we're progressing in it. Uh, so I thought a lot about it, sisters and brothers, and uh, titled what I want to share with you tonight called Black People Still Don't Get It. For some time now, I have been trying to get the idea over that black people must take charge of their lives and those of their children. Um, we, we can't leave this to other people to do because they're not going to do it. And we cannot sit around wringing our hands and shaking our heads and talking. It's getting late, brothers and sisters, especially for our children. Now when, the way, when it gets to the point that the way we live is destructive and leads to our extermination, then we have to think about what has happened to our culture. And we need to take a long, serious look at our condition now. If culture is the sum total of artifacts which any group accumulates in its struggle for survival and autonomy, then it's dynamic because it's a struggle. It's not static. It doesn't stand still and never change. It changes with the condition. Okay, because as you try to survive and to be self-autonomous and the conditions change that keep you from doing that, you change in order to combat those conditions. Yeah. Am I making sense to you? Okay. Now, what is, what is, what is survival? I mean, you know, what, survival means that the group has to do at, at least three things. One, the group has to see that each individual member keeps himself or herself in good enough mental, right. moral, spiritual, mm -hmm. and physical health right. long enough to reproduce that self right. and then take care of whatever you reproduce. Right. That's the least. Right. If, you don't, if you don't do that, the group dies. It's gone. Okay. So that's what survival means. In order to be self-autonomous, it means that the group has to have within its control the means to assure its survival. Yeah. All right. You can't depend on nobody else to do that. All right. That's not going to happen. That's not the way the world works. Now, what are the chief obstacles to survival? Okay. Let's just be real. What are they? One is nature. You got to have within the means of the group some way for the group to survive earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever. All right. So nature is one. Other men and women who might want to take your land, water, means of survival. And yourself. You can't become no cotton picking drug addict, alcoholic, and kill yourself. All right. 
Okay. Those are the obstacles. Now, the culture that we pass down from generation to generation is supposed to help the group to survive and to be self-autonomous. The major way that we pass this culture on is through what? Groups. Family, right. church, right. school, right. organizations like this. All right. Those are the means. Okay, now, unfortunately for us, we live in a country where the overriding values of the country are against us. Mm -hmm. For instance, these overriding values put in the positions of privilege mm -hmm. people who are white, people who are male, and people who are wealthy. And these three groups dominate the society. So when we talk about teaching our children instrumental values like equality, liberty, fraternity, etc., we are talking about ordering those values under the institutional values of race, gender, and wealth. So that more white people get equality, liberty, and fraternity than black people, more men get equality, liberty, and fraternity than women, and more wealthy people get equality, liberty, and fraternity than poor people. You get it? All right. All right. All right. It doesn't do enough then, ladies and gentlemen, for us to teach our children about the instrumental values, you know, if we don't teach them the impact of the institutional values on the distribution of the latter. Otherwise, our kids don't get the full message and don't know how to behave. Now, when I was a young woman looking for a job in 1947, the newspapers would advertise, no Negroes need apply. Right. Chicago, Illinois, March 28, 1947. Chicago, Illinois, I did not say Mississippi. North, I was up north. Right. right. So, what did that say? That said that at, in Mar on March 28, 1947, when I was looking for my first job, affirmative action was for white people. Right. Now, just because we didn't call it that then, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't mean it wasn't. And now, that it's our turn to have affirmative action, is suddenly no turns. No turns. It's always our turn, All right. right? It's always white people's turn for affirmative action. Nobody else gets a turn. So, so much for taking turns. But isn't that what we teach for two weeks in kindergarten? Oh, the teacher tells you, your child has to learn to take a turn. We teach him to take a turn in kindergarten. Take a turn in first grade. Take a turn in second grade. Wait your turn in third grade. Don't butt in fourth grade. Stay in line in fifth grade. When you get to be an adult, you stand and queue up at the cashier. Take your turn. Wait your turn. But don't nobody take no turns in this country. It's always the white man's turn. It's always the rich man's turn. It's always their turn. So, so much for taking turns. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which legalized Jim Crow. And the overt racism that we knew as Jim Crow was forbidden. 
and most Negroes now calling themselves black thought the problem was solved. Black folks just didn't get it. We just didn't get it. We thought that the problem was segregation. But segregation was a symbol of the problem. The problem was this institutional value system of race, gender, and wealth. That's the problem. And ladies and gentlemen, it still is. The United States is not a democracy yet. It's trying to be, you know, trying to be. And I always tell my students when they say, I'm trying to do it, Miss Sizemore, I say, come here. And I say, I'm trying to hit you. I'm trying to hit you, right? I'm trying to hit you. And then when I finish, I said, did I hit you? And he said, no, I said, so much for trying. <laughs> but, but the United States is a capitalist country. It is that. Now, if it can be a democracy within the parameters prescribed by the capitalist paradigm, it does it. But when it can't, it won't. The basic premise of capitalism is to make a profit by any means necessary. And the unit of measure is the United States dollar. And ladies and gentlemen, it is taboo to teach this to your children. When I say taboo, I mean it's forbidden. For instance, if anybody gets up in front of a class and tries to teach the children about capitalism and how to be a capitalist, they are immediately labeled socialist or communist and run out of the, the room. Right? It's a taboo. Don't you think that's strange that in a capitalist country we cannot teach our children to be capitalists? Oh, think about it. Because you see, in a capitalist country, you are either a capitalist or you are a victim. All right. There's no in-betweens. Right. There's no in-betweens. You either play the game here or you are a victim of it. Now you have to make a choice. Of course, you can always leave the country. All right. That's another choice. Right? Now capitalism demands Competition, selfishness, and mean-spiritedness. It demands it. But what do they teach your children in school? Be cooperative. Be cooperative. Take your turn. Don't fight. Don't cheat. Now everybody engaged in capitalism knows that the motto is win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. <laughs> and what I am trying to explain to you, ladies and gentlemen, is the real world that our children live in, not the ideal one that we want them to live in, not this wonderful world that we pray that will come here one day, but the real world that they have to live in. You want to know why they're acting so crazy? You want to know why they're doing the things that they're doing? Because we have not prepared them to live in this real world. We have sent them through 12 years of school teaching them this dumb stuff that doesn't work, and when they go out and try to apply it and get killed for it, we are not there. All right. 
them to. We are not there. We fade away on them. Somewhere around about ninth grade, we start talking about, I can't control him. I can't do nothing with him. Get out of my house if you don't do what I tell you to do. And we abandon them to the mean streets and then cry because they get murdered. Capitalism is not compatible with equality. It is not compatible with equity. It is not compatible with Christianity, no matter how hard we try. The struggle for survival in the United States is the handling of this never-ending tension between the institutional values of race, gender, and wealth, which give undue and unearned privileges and advantages to some so that others cannot compete on an equal basis for the resources of this country. All right. This is the game. This is the game, ladies and gentlemen. As Alton told you, politics is the management of the conflict which occurs when groups war over the resources. Resources include money, land. Right? So politics is just the passing around of the resources. If you don't have the resources, as Alton told you, you're not in the game. Black people just don't get it. All right. All right. We just don't get it. All right. Those who are at the bottom form a group which is bound by its cultural artifacts. That's language, religion, tradition, art, music, style, values. And these form a bond of cohesion which, if nourished, does become nationalism. All right. But it has to be nourished. All right. And it has to be nourished by the group. All right. Thank you. How do we do that? Family, church, school, organization, right. institutions. Okay. All right. All right. When it becomes nationalistic, then the group is strong enough to create an economic niche in which the people can slide to make a living. All right. But under capitalism, you must be a producer. You cannot continue to be consumers. Right. African Americans spend more money than, well, there's one group that spends more money than us. We spend. Ladies and gentlemen, this means we do have money. All right. We spend it, right? So if you got money to spend, you do have money. This, this girl lost her father. She was in medical school when I was living in Pittsburgh. This young lady lost her father, uh, and he, he left enough money for her to go to school to finish her medical school, but it was in probate in the Pennsylvania court, and so she needed the money to pay her tuition right away. So she came to me and she said, could, do you think that you could get $5,000 from me to pay my tuition? And she needed it like in two weeks. So I went to my block club. We had a nice little block club, you know, all these little middle class people, professional people up on the hill. They're called Sugar Top in Pittsburgh. And I saw one around the block club and I said, can we get $5,000 together to get to this girl so she could get through school? And they used to come talking to me, but we ain't got that kind of money. 
Now I said, well, let's figure out some way to do it and we'll meet in three days. And so during that three days, I walked around in the six block area in which I live, which is called Sugar Top in Pittsburgh. And I just wrote down all the cars that cost more than $35,000. Now, now these cars, mind you, cost more than $35,000 was sitting out on the street. They didn't have garages to put them in. So I went to the next three day meeting and I had the long list of cars. And I said, look, sisters, I said, look at all these cars that white people are parking in front of our houses. <laughs> because obviously if we didn't have no money we couldn't be buying $35,000 cars right okay so the sisters forked up the money and we got it to the girl but my point is that we say we don't have any money but funny enough we got money to buy all of these clothes and all of these cars and all these rings I see, I see brothers and sisters with nine pounds of gold hanging around them talking about they ain't got no money. Well, I guess not if it's all on plastic. But that's another problem. That's another problem. You must try to be plastic free. The plastic makes you a victim. The plastic makes you a victim. You will never participate in the capitalist process as a winner, if you are a victim. All right. Then the brother came to me and he talked to me. He said, all this old capitalism crap you talking about. He said, you ought to shut up because we don't want to be engaged in capitalism. I said, show me your wallet. So he took out his wallet. I said, ain't no money in it. He said, no. I said, well, how you live? Where you live? Because I got to pay rent where I live. Where you live at? You can't pay, you don't have to pay no rent. What do you eat? Because every time I go to the Jewel, they want long green pictures of dead presidents. All right. I mean, hey man, be real. You can't live in the United States of America without any money. I don't know a problem that our people have that would not be solved by more money. Now you, now you see me afterwards. You see me afterwards, if you got a problem, then money won't solve because I want to know about it because I'm making a list of them. All right. Because in a capitalist country, you see, that's the whole gig. That's right. That's the whole gig. The whole gig is to make everything cost money. Right. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, everything is for sale. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Everything. That's Jesse Jackson. Now. <laughs> If you want to change things around here, I'm with you. I'm for you. But in the meantime, while you're changing, you got to eat. Because if you don't eat, you're going to be one dead revolutionary. All right. All right. So let's be real. I'm trying to stick to what's real, ladies and gentlemen. Because it's this tension between what's real and what's ideal that's killing our kids because they don't know how to deal with it. Okay, what's the problem here? The problem here is that the economy has been restructured. All right. So that the jobs that people used to get with little or no education have now disappeared. All right. In order to get one of those jobs, you now have to commute to Taiwan. All right. Or Mexico City. All right. Or Haiti. You got to commute for those jobs now, ladies and gentlemen. They're not in Brooklyn. Okay. So those jobs are gone. So what are our people doing now that those jobs have disappeared? Using their usual creativity to create new ones. 
But where is the opening for these new creative endeavors? In drugs. All right. We don't have a drug policy in the United States. I know you know better than that. Right. We don't have a drug policy. We got a prison policy, but no drug policy. 80% of the cocaine used in the United States is used by white people. Right. 80%. But look at television every night. Do you see them going to jail? No. Because that's not the way the business is structured. You see, drug, the drug industry is now a part of the gross national product. And they can't get rid of it if they wanted to. Everybody's, you know, mad at Kurt Schmoke because he said, uh, and uh, Joyce Lynn Elders because they're talking about legalizing drugs. How am I going to legalize drugs? You don't have to take those two people seriously. It's not going to happen because people make too much money off it. Not us. Not us, we're getting killed and going to prison. But that's part of the deal too. Look at this, look at this capitalist plan now. Look at it. What did I tell you was to make a profit by any means necessary. Okay, how do you make a profit here? Well, you build the prisons. Where are these prisons built? In New York City? In Brooklyn? Oh, oh. where are the prisons built? Who, who, who lives there? Okay, then who's going to build these prisons, ladies and gentlemen? Who's going to provide the guards in these prisons, ladies and gentlemen? I rest my case. Going to provide jobs, both construction, maintenance. Okay, that's where the job's going to be in prison. All right, now let's look at where the money goes. A sociologist named Troy Duster at the University of California, Berkeley, has been studying the drug business. Troy is a brother, he's a sociologist, and what he noticed is that there are layers, just like in any other hierarchy, right? The guys at the top, guys at the bottom. Okay, as you come, the top, the international cartel that runs the drug business, it's on top. Those are the international owners of the drug business. And then underneath them, is a layer of international distributors. All right. These are the people that distribute drugs all over the world. Then underneath them is a loose network of international bankers. All right. They launder the money all right. so that it can be distributed into legitimate business. All right. And it is this money that's fueling the economy now. All right. there you go. So if you're looking forward to drugs being disappearing, you are really naive. That's right. Black people just don't get it. That's right. They just don't get it. That's right. The bottom of the industry, the street industry, is run by poors, poor, poor black and Latino people. Or anybody else that's poor want to get in it. Now these are the people selling on the street, so they get caught and they get put in jail. Now, the part of the drug business that's used by the middle class elite gives you less time in jail than that sold to the poor. So as you come down the line from the international cartel, you get blacker and blacker and blacker, okay? And the punishment starts with the street level. All right. No bankers go to jail. No right. bankers go to jail. That's right. The field re regional representatives in the country, they don't go to jail. The couriers go to jail. The street distributors go to jail. That's right. The managers of the distribution in the poor communities go to jail. Yeah. 
Because it's easier to put them in jail. Because they have no group that helps them to survive. So these people come from the dysfunctional groups in the society. These are the groups whose culture doesn't save them. Because the people haven't had enough sense to save their culture. Black people just don't get it. We just don't get it. We just don't get it. Other groups come in this country, they get it right away. And we get mad at them because they get it. I've been away from Chicago for 20 years. I came back two years ago. I walked down, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what I was seeing on 47th Street. The stores are all owned by Arabs and Koreans. These were stores that used to be owned by peop black people. Now none of them are. They work from dawn to, to sunset. They're in these stores all day long, selling us what we need. They have their families working in there. They don't hire nobody. People, right. Black people out there picking and talking about they don't hire no black people. Anybody in there, everybody's related. They're all family. I said, how you gonna get a job in there? You're not Korean, fool. That's right. That's right. You gotta be in their family to work there. When the Nation of Islam began buying up 79th Street in, the in Chicago in the 1960s, I thought we finally had gotten in. But this effort was lost in the usual ego struggles of African-American men. Ego struggles have spoiled more freedom efforts in my lifetime than I would care to stand up here and talk to you about. In fact, I have been involved in so many that now I just refuse to join another movement. We must learn to work together as a group. Alton talked to us about that tonight. I won't repeat it because he talked to us about that. We must learn to do this, ladies and gentlemen, because everybody does it if they get out of poverty in this country. They work together as a group. They work together as a group. If we are to survive and, the, and be autonomous in the United States, we must change our way of looking at living our culture is no longer functional because we've lost so much of the culture that used to save us. Our children are killing each other and us because we are not paying attention to what is happening to them. Alton made reference to the prisons. That's the second part of the gross national product. In every state, they are building these prisons right. to put our people in, in order to get us out of the labor market, mm -hmm. and then to exploit us for providing jobs for them. Either way, you look at it. Going into the drug industry to try to be a businessman at the lower end where you get killed, or going to prison, we're still, once again, exploited, enslaved, used for others to become welcome, wealthy, so they can be rich. We spend a lot of time being resentful of Koreans and Hispanic people and Arabs who are trying to use this system the way that we should be using it. 
Now, why don't we do this? Let's look at that for a minute. All right. You remember when I told you about we tell our kids all the time in school, take a turn, but in the real world, you don't take a turn? Okay. We also teach our kids that there's something wrong with being separate. As soon as we get a little money, we want to be as close to white people as we can get. We want to live in their neighborhoods. We want to go to their schools. We want to marry them. We want, we just, we just got the problem, right? We just have the problem. We don't like us, right? We don't like us. That's a big problem, ladies and gentlemen. It's a big problem. As soon as we get a little bit of money, we want to run away from us. Now, what do other groups do? They run together. And the first stage of that inclusion model is called separatism. And they come together because they have a common culture that saves them from these obstacles. Right? Okay. We need to think about being separate. We need to stop being afraid of, being, of nationalism, because we're afraid of it. All right, all right. We're afraid of it. And, and our enemies want us to stay afraid. Because next to God, nationalism is the most powerful organizing force that man knows. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. The most powerful, the most powerful is God. And if you don't believe me, look at the fundamentalist right, how they are driving abortion out of this country All right, without changing the law. How are they doing it? Killing doctors. All right. Shooting them. All right. See, that's what, that's what a powerful dynamic could do for you. If we had a powerful God dynamic, our kids wouldn't be killing each other. They might be killing somebody else, but it wouldn't be each other. That's it. That's it. That's it. But we don't have that. We don't have a powerful God dynamic. We used to, but we don't more. Next to that is nationalism. That's the next most powerful dynamic you have for organizing people. All right. Now, at one time, we had a model, and that was the Nation of Islam. And they were using it to death, mm -hmm. but Ego killed it. Mm -hmm. In her paper, Whiteness as Property, Harvard Law Review, June 1993, Cheryl I. Harris argues that whiteness is built on both exclusion and racial subjugation. Mm -hmm. And this is how she says it's used. Race has not only been constructed as race, but also as a privilege. That's why we got this hair problem. Race is determined by visibility and reputation because there are over a million African Americans passing for white every day. 
And if you make friends with some of them, they will give you some powerful bits of information about the other folks that help you. Uh, and remember what Alton told you, information is power, right? I seek them out in any institution I go to. I try to see if I can find out who's passing. <laughs> Now, you can't tell on them now. That ain't the point. I want the information. Tell me what these doctors do in this hospital when they come in here. Tell me how they treat us when we come in here, because I want to know before I bring my mama over here. And they'll tell you. That's if you, you, know, you don't turn them in. All right? Okay. Harris argues that the decision to pass as white was not a choice if by that word one means voluntariness or lack of compulsion. She says that the fact of race subordination was coercive and circumscribed the liberty to self-define. In other words, because you are black, your ability to define yourself is limited in this. And passing for white frees you of that limitation. So she says if that is true and you want to define who you are, then it might not be voluntary. Now my interaction with some of these people is that they passing for white in order to what? Survive. Survive and have self-autonomy. Okay? Now let's look at the real world that makes you want to do that. And then think, let's think about those of us who can't if we wanted to. I mean, you know, you think I'd get away with it? I'd go out and say, I'm passing for white. Uh-uh, I don't think so. Self-determination of identity is not a right for us. It's not a right for us. But it's a privilege for white people, right? So the effect of protecting whiteness at law was to devalue those who were not white by coercing them to deny their identity. So I straightened my hair. I whitened my skin. I cut off my nose. I fixed my lips. I cover up my heels and wear a girdle on my butt so I can look what? Why? Because that's the identity that I want. Now this is the crux of the matter, ladies and gentlemen, for our children. And we have chosen, and I say chosen because we didn't have to do this, we have chosen to destroy the main weapon for survival, which is our identity. Uh -oh. And this has posed a severe problem for us and for our children. Because if I don't like who I am, I'm hardly going to raise a child who does. Because my child is a mirror of me. The way out is through mobilization of the group to struggle for the survival of the individual. And you have to understand that black folks just don't get it. All right. I'm not giving up my individual right to sacrifice for the group. That's not what it's all about. Hey, 
The problem with that is the Constitution gives you individual rights, but you can only protect them as a group. All right. See, that's the problem. All right. All right. That's the problem. To survive, the group must ensure that each individual member is able to take care of himself or herself, reproduce himself or herself, and take care of the progeny. And we are losing the group function. It doesn't matter where. We're losing it in the family. We're losing it in the church. We're certainly losing it in the school. We're losing it in the community. We're losing it in our institutions. Our families are disrupted. Only 26% of all African American children live with both parents. Our churches are predominantly female, 80%. Our schools are mostly dysfunctional. Children do not learn anything in them. And our communities are disorganized. No leadership, no resources, no support. Black people still don't get it. We don't get it. We just don't get it. That it's the group function that's going to carry us through. It's the group function. Individual members working together as a group in order to take care of their own children, take care of their own poor and elderly, take care of their own disorganized and mentally ill. We can't even get control of the NAACP. This is our largest organization, and we can't even get control of it. We cannot even hire and keep the executive director of the NAACP. And this is no surprise. All right. Um, I don't know whether you're too young to remember or not, but I certainly remember when Julian Bond wanted Roy Wilkins' job and couldn't get it because of his position on Israel. Look at the African Americans chosen by President Clinton. Ask yourself if they represent you. No. Who recommended these folks? All right. What group? I don't think African-Americans did it. Right. See, black people still don't get it. All right. We look at these black people on TV and we say, oh, President Clinton, he got a black man. Tell him, yeah, but who, who picked him? That's right. right. Whom does he represent? That's right. Every group, through the pooling of its own resources, lifts itself up out of poverty. That's right. If you're waiting for Bill Clinton to lift you out of poverty, you still don't get it. You really don't get it. If you're waiting for the Black Caucus to lift you out of poverty, you don't get it. You still don't get it. Every group, through the pooling of its own resources, lifts itself up out of poverty. We keep expecting some other group to do it for us. It's never going to happen. Black people still don't get it. We must, through the group function, build our own hospitals. I remember when I lived at 8622 South Wabash in a neighborhood called Chatham in 1969. Elijah Muhammad wanted to build a hospital on 83rd Street. The middle class blacks who were my neighbors in Chatham ran down to Mayor Daly and begged him to do something about this assault on our middle class community. And the mayor converted the desired area into a park. So instead of a black-owned hospital, we got a park. Later, the only black hospital in Chicago, Provident, closed. 
and then we had none. See, black people don't get it. They, they just don't get it. When I came back to Chicago in 1992, you know what I did, of course, was to immediately begin working with um, the schools. It was interesting um, for me to go back home. Uh, those of you who know me know I started teaching Chicago Public Schools in 1947, and I, was, I taught every single grade. I started out as a Latin high school teacher in Wendell Phillips High School. Remember, I came up during Jim Crow, so I've never taught anything, anybody but, but African-American children. I'm, I came up doing Jim Crow. I taught every grade. I taught Latin in high school. I taught educatively, mentally handicapped, primary and secondary. I taught English to the Spanish speaking. I taught every single grade. I was an elementary school principal and a high school principal in Chicago Public Schools. Then I was the director of the Woodlawn Experimental Schools Project, which was Chicago's uh, experiment with um, community control, like your um, IS-201. That's, that, I was director of that in, in Chicago. And then when the funding ran out for that, they put me downtown because they didn't want me back out in the field. So I was being punished. And I was given an assignment with uh, this white man. I, I, I hated him. I'll just tell you the truth. Uh, I, I hate. I try. Not, I try not to hate because hate really destroys you. <laughs> um, but I, I hated this man. And um, and and the feeling was mutual. I understand. The feeling is mutual. Uh, so I wrote to the deputy superintendent, who was an African American, and I wrote him a long letter. I still have a copy of this letter, and I have his reply because one day I'm going to put it in the book. Although I might wait until he's deceased. And anyway, I wrote him a letter and and asked him to move me out of here because of this racist man, and also he was to some other problems. And so. Um, the African-American wrote back to me and said there wasn't anything he could do to help me that, uh, you know, that I would just have to uh, get through it like everybody else did. And so I quit. I, I quit the Chicago Public Schools and left Chicago. That was 1972. And this white man went to jail. He, he's still in jail. Um, so when I got back home, um, in 1992, I started work with schools. I'm, I'm now the dean of the School of Education at DePaul University, and this is a strange place for me to be. It's a Roman Catholic university, and I'm Baptist. <laughs> uh, uh, when I first came, well, I, I was going to retire. Uh, those of you who know me know my mother had Alzheimer's, and I was trying to get home. I'm an only child. I did get home, thank God for her many blessings. I did get home in time before my mother died. Um, but anyway, um, I was retiring from the University of Pittsburgh. I was 65 years old and when this man told me this job was available. So I told him I really wasn't interested. I said, I'm not Roman Catholic and I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a Jesuit institution, you know, um, reviewing esoteric bodies of knowledge and all. So he said, oh, this is not a Jesuit school. Well. You know, I didn't, I'm not Roman Catholic, so that didn't have any meaning for me. He said, this is a Vincentian school, and I didn't know what that meant either. So he sent me a book about St. Vincent de Paul, who was the founder of the Congregation of the Mission, which is the order of priests who founded de Paul. He's a very interesting man, St. Vincent de Paul. One time in his life, he was enslaved. 
and he, he founded this mission to help poor people. And so when I, when I read his story, I said, well, at least I'll go talk to these people and see if this is for real or if this is, you know, like 9-11, just a joke. So I went in there to talk to them. I went to talk to them, and I found out that this, they really are for real. They have a feeding station there on Sheffield and Webster at the St. Vincent de Paul Church. And if you get there in the morning between 7.30 and 8.30, you'll see a line of like 50 to 100 black men coming in there to be fed and clothed. Um, they also have programs for juveniles and, and little children in the St. Vincent de Paul Center. So I said, okay, well maybe, you know, maybe God has blessed me and finally put me somewhere where I want to fight people to help poor people. And that is true. In the twilight years of my life, I'm in a job where I can, without any apologies, anytime I want to, help poor people. And so that's, that's what I did. Those of, you, those of you who know me remember when I got fired from my job October the 9th, 1975, as superintendent of the D.C. Public Schools, that I promised God if she would help me find another job somewhere, you know, doing her will, that I would devote my life to doing that. And so this is where I am. Right. Okay, so I have 10 schools. I have 10 schools that I work in, 10 schools that I work in. These are schools that are 100% African-American or 100% Latino. The children are all poor and they're all low achieving. And my job is to elevate and accelerate student achievement in reading and mathematics as measured on standardized tests uh, for these children in these schools and we're trying to do it in one year. Now since I've been back in Chicago, I've been having a big fight with the reform movement, which is largely white. Now mind you, the school system there is 56% African American, 32% uh, Latino, and the rest white. But the entire reform movement is made up of elite white males, uh, most of them are middle class or more. Um, what they are trying to do now is to abolish standardized tests in the schools uh, so that when they take the schools over, uh, when they privatize the schools, they will not have to be accountable to you. Now there are several things that they're using to their advantage and that is, first place, we suspect these tests. We always have. We have always been in the vanguard fighting the standardized test movement in this country. All, we have always been in the vanguard of that movement. And we have always said, you know, back to Allison Davis, way back, 1940, that these tests are biased against poor people and against minorities. We have always said that. We have always said that. So this is not new to us. We understand that. So now they're playing on our suspicions. They're saying to us, oh, you know these tests are culturally biased? And we say, yes, yeah, sure enough, that's right. So they say, well, we want your support to abolish these tests. And we say, yeah, fine, you got it and then they abolish the test, then they take the schools away from you and give them to the corporations, and then you will have no way of knowing whether your kid can read or not. You cannot hold them accountable because you don't know what they do. Okay, but, but let's look at the real world now that these kids gotta live in. Do you think, do you think that DePaul is gonna stop asking your kid to pass the SAT with a 1,000 score to get admitted? Do you really believe that? Right, because if you said yes, black people still don't get it. You still don't get it. Listen, 
Your kid, whether you abolish them or not, your kid is still going to have to take the SAT, the ACT, the MSAT, MCAT, the LSAT, and any other kind of T that they got going for them, they want to keep you out of a job. This, this system is not about to be test-free because tests sort you out too effectively. This white reform movement is trying to sell you assessment by portfolio and calling it authentic in order to pull the wool over your eyes. Let me tell you, any time a test depends upon a white jury to tell you whether or not you are competent, you can believe it is not going to work for you. And if you think so, black people still don't get it. You just don't get it. You just don't get it, all right? Now, the only place in this society that you can get in by portfolio is prison. You can't come to DePaul by portfolio. You can't get in Harvard by portfolio. You cannot get a promotion in the Chicago police force by portfolio. You have to pass a standardized norm reference police test that you take with paper and pencil. Ladies and gentlemen, the only place you get in by portfolio is prison. Now, if you do not understand it, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Ladies and gentlemen, you just don't get it. All right. All right. So we have this struggle going on in Chicago. In 1988, a reform group changed the law so that now principals are hired and fired by local school councils in every school, and we have 506 of them in Chicago. The principals have no tenure but four-year contracts. Some schools have had four principals in the six years since the law passed, depriving these schools of leadership continuity without which nothing happens. And just like everybody else, if you do not train and educate people to assume the roles you create for them to do in a society, they will try to use their former experience in order to construct that role. So when they created local school councils and had these elections and elected all of these people to these local school councils for these 506 schools, they did not provide them with any training. They did not provide them with any education. So the people did what anyone would do. They constructed their role according to the only model they knew, which was the Democratic Party patronage model. And that's what they do. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, in Chicago, nobody cares whether our children learn to read. Nobody. It's enough to break your heart. You walk into these schools, ladies and gentlemen, and you see our children in there wanting to learn, anxious to learn, with teachers who don't give a damn, who don't even try, who give excuses and excuses and excuses, and who still get their paychecks, still get promoted, And the teachers who are trying, let's don't leave them out. The teachers in there who are trying get discouraged. They get discouraged. How would you feel if you knocked yourself out with 30 little kids for 180 days and when you finished with them, they had grown three and four years in reading and then you sent them to a sucker who didn't do anything for the year and when you saw them again, they had lost everything that you taught them. How would you feel? You can't do these to these teachers. 
We can't do this to these teachers. We can't do this to these teachers. We've got to make these schools places that work for our children. And that's our responsibility, ladies and gentlemen. That's our responsibility. We cannot send our children to these schools. I don't care whether public, private, or parochial and abandon your children in there and expect people to do what you should be doing for them. It's not going to happen, ladies and gentlemen. And if you think it is, you still don't get it. You just don't get it. You just don't get it. At face value, at face value, as I said, the abandonment of the test looks like a good deal for African Americans until you view it in the setting of this whole society. And then when you look at it that way, it takes on another face. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot make it in this society if you cannot read. Well, say it again. Our children are coming out of the high school and they can't read. They can't read. And our children are normal, ladies and gentlemen. Our children are normal. But we allow people to say they're not. Every time you sign a blue sheet sending a black kid to educably mentally handicapped, you're saying this is not a normal child. Listen, God did not create that many dumb black people. God didn't do that. You're doing it. These children just need to be taught. They need to be taught. They need to be taught. In 1932, Carter G. Woodson told us if a child doesn't learn, a child needs to be studied, not abandoned, not penalized, not put away, not labeled, studied! So that you could teach him or her. We're not doing that. We don't even expect teachers to do it. We don't even expect them to do it. We expect them to stand up in TV. I saw them just yesterday on TV saying, oh, my kids are crack babies. And Well, that's 1%. What about all those that are not crack babies that can't read? Uh, my uh, parents don't come to school. No, they work in three jobs. Uh, my parents don't do this and whatever. All these excuses, all these excuses, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I know are not true. Raise your hand if you were born with money. Y'all had, you had all the money you needed. Raise your hand. I, I want to see them. Well, you could learn to read. And you were poor. How many of you had only one parent? Grew up with only one parent? Okay, how many of y'all can read? Uh, yeah, well, okay. Then why do you let teachers get away with this? Why do you do this? Why do you let them stand up on TV and let them say this and then give them a raise? You got, hey, ladies and gentlemen, still don't get it. Just don't get it. What has happened to our group pride, our group culture, our group advancement, group charity? We don't even want to take care of each other. We don't even want to, I, go, I go around a middle class people like me and say, let's raise some money, get some place for these people to live that's homeless. I got to pay for my bills. I got a $500 note on my car. Yeah, okay. Who cares anymore 
about the students, Nobody. our children, who is responsible for seeing that they survive? We have proceeded with political strategies as though politics can be considered separately from economic strategies. This won't work. We've got to stop spending all of the money as consumers, and we've got to learn to be producers and owners. Listen, our children do not need two weeks of sharing in kindergarten. They need two weeks of ownership. They need to learn what it means to own something. You need in every school that you find African Americans to have them open a bank account. Every single kid in the school, open a bank account, learn how to save money so that they can pool their money and have a business. That's the way you make it here. We have no way to sanction leaders who don't lead, teachers who don't teach, principals who don't principal, preachers who don't advance the group, politicians who don't represent our interests, businessmen who don't help the group, athletes and entertainers who sell out. We, we don't have any way to sanction these folks. We let, I was standing in the record, uh, no, they don't call them records anymore. Uh, we call those things, Charlie. We call them little round things. Uh, CDs. I was in there, and the little girl was buying a CD by this foul group that, that denigrates women. So I went up to her and I said, why are you buying that? And so she looked at me and she said, you got a problem, what's happening? And I said, I said, look, do you know how he talks about you in that, in that record, on a record? And she said, no, I don't listen to the words, I just like music. So I said, look, this man talks about you like you a living dog. I said, and you, and then now and that he calls you by the dog's name, bitch. I said, you gonna pay money to take that home? and participate in your own denigration? So she looked at me and she said, I don't listen to the words. I said, listen to them. I said, you listen to them because what you're doing is contributing to your own destruction. Right? We know these people. You and I know who these people are, but we go support them with our dollars, go see them, Give them money. The best way you can bring these entertainers down if you don't like them is don't spend your money with them. We worship consumerism. Oh my God, brothers and sisters. We worship consumerism and materialism. And as though selfishness is a virtue just like Ayn Rand teaches. In fact, I have lived long enough to see a new Rand disciple who is black and female. Oh God have mercy. The struggle for equality will not occur without a group effort, ladies and gentlemen. Individualism is not the way other groups advance in this society. Wealth is accumulated by one, but passed on by the group, by the family, by the business, by the institution, by the organization. The Kennedy fortune, the Rockefeller empires, those were begun by one person, but passed on and increased by the group effort. That is the nature of the company the heart and engine of capitalism. The Millionaire's Club formed in the African-American community largely by entertainers and athletes passes on what and to whom. Except for a few of them, like Bill Cosby, it seems to be too little and too late. It is more important to us to buy a $40,000 car than to give $10,000 to Philander Smith College or Tougaloo.
We just don't get it, ladies and gentlemen. Black people just don't get it. There are not enough people like Ruth Hare in Philadelphia who accumulated wealth which she invested to pay the college tuitions and fees for a group of sixth graders if and when they graduated from high school. One Benz would pay four years of college for somebody. Okay. Raise your hand if you think Bill Clinton is going to be the father to our children. Raise your hand if you think the Democrats are going to take care of our elderly. I know you don't think the Republicans are going to do anything for us. If it is to happen, we have to do it. If not, if not, ladies and gentlemen, we will not survive. We will not survive. All right. You remember things fall apart? And the white man put a knife to our people and things fell apart. That will surely happen to us if we don't get it. All right. In our 1979 dissertation, Carol and Elaine Bennett Murray wrote the following. When teachers made causal attributions about the importance of their own characteristics in determining a successful performance for a student, they tended to perceive themselves as more responsible for a successful outcome for students belonging to a subordinate group, blacks, lower class, those failing in school, than to a superordinate group. If the superordinate kids failed, it was the teacher's fault. But if the black kids failed, it was their fault. Okay? However, counter to prediction, teachers perceived themselves as more responsible for a successful performance by black middle class students than black lower class students. But not so with whites. White middle class students were responsible for their success. But black middle class children's success was due to their teacher. And a reverse pattern of responding resulted when black middle class and lower class students failed. Teachers preferred, ladies and gentlemen, to teach black lower class students over black middle class students. The major implication of Bennett Murray's findings is to the extent that positive sentiments manifest themselves in rewards. A minority student will often be rewarded for failure and punished for success. Hence, the differential level of scholastic achievement observed among students of various socioeconomic and racial backgrounds may have less to do with tangibles, such as books, buildings, equipment, and so forth, than to do with intangibles, such as the differential expectations, the causal attributions and sentiments expressed by the teacher for the student. Here we find that teachers tend to like, that is express positive sentiment toward, students whose characteristics live up to their expectations. Hence, since smart African-American students do not live up to the teacher's low expectations for African-American students, they do not like them. 
So the African-American student in schools is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Now tell me, who wants to stay in school under these conditions? Yet, many African-American teachers, many African-American teachers behave in the same way, disregarding their tradition of pride, honor, intelligence, and struggle. I do not know what has happened to us, ladies and gentlemen, over the 40 years that I've been in education. How did we arrive in this place? The white man has put the knife to what binds us together, and now things fall apart. After all of this history, struggle, the great men and women, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Martin Delaney, Sojourner Truth, W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Booker T. Washington, Mary Church Terrell, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, and Betty Shabazz, Leonard Jeffries, Shashi McIntyre, Donald Smith, and Alton Maddox. We still don't get it. Thank you. Dr. Barbara Sizemore. Dr. Barbara Sizemore.